We started a conversation last week on vision and how vision becomes reality. And we looked at Nehemiah's story, this uh, Jewish person in the 5th century, a man living in the Persian Empire, who found out that the walls of his family's home or his home or the, the home of his ancestors in Jerusalem, the walls were crumbled, the gates were destroyed, and it really broke his heart. He, he, he understood that his people and his home city was in trouble and discouraged and that their future depended on really these walls being restored. And a vision was birthed in him. The broken walls broke his heart and that sparked vision. We talked about that last week, that there's a variety of things that the Lord uses to spark vision in us for what becomes a preferred future. Um, and Nehemiah had that. Something sparked in him for a preferred future for Jerusalem. And we said this last week, that vision is really uh, a, a seeing a preferred future, what could be, what should be, what can be. And what sparks that in us is different things, but ultimately we believe that the gospel itself, the work of Jesus Christ, the reconciliation of the cross, sparks a preferred vision in us because we begin to see what God sees and what God desires. The famous prayer in Matthew 6, Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is a preferred vision for what God sees. And in Nehemiah's story last week, we discovered that one key element of vision becoming reality, and really we asked that question last week, big question last week, how does vision become reality? How does, how does this preferred future become real, or how do we grow towards it? And last week in Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's story, one pivotal piece in his story is that the soil of vision becoming reality is prayer. That it's not just a spark and it's not just strategy, but what, what filled in the gap between Nehemiah's spark for vision and his strategy towards seeing that vision come to fruit was prayer. Part of the soil of a vision growing and becoming reality is prayer. Um, you have a, a card on your seats today, and it's just a, a reminder, an invitation to what we started last Tuesday via email called 40 Days of Prayer, where we're calling our church to pray together every single day. It's a real simple, short, reflective read with a focused prayer uh, in it, and it, it aligns with our season that we're in right now. And so if you're not part of that, uh, please, at some point today, like go on our website and sign up or on our Facebook page and sign up or let, let the people at the back, uh, our connection team, just know that you'd like to receive these daily and then you'll start tomorrow. Uh, so together as a church community, we can grow towards this. We really feel called to pray in this season. And it... It's partly, we see this in Nehemiah's story, that the vision that God sparked in him, he paused and prayed, focused on God's character and consecrated himself, had a confessional heart and humble, and then brought the cause before God. And in this, uh, just a few weeks, we're talking about vision here. Prayer is really the beginning of it. And we believe that we all need prayer. But here's the, here's the deal. This week, we're going to go one step further because the Bible and experience tells us that it's not only prayer that turns a vision into reality. It's, it's so important that we pray. And we're calling each other to pray in this season. But it's not only prayer that turns a vision into reality. In fact, in Nehemiah's story, if we would continue the story, and we're not reading verse by verse it's, uh, in this series particularly, but um, in Nehemiah's story, when the vision is sparked and he comes to the Lord in prayer and he moves towards strategy, he eventually gets to Jerusalem. And he, he, he leaves his city in, per, in the Persian Empire called Susa, and he finally gets his way to Jerusalem. 
And he does that because he wants to inspect the walls for himself. He wants to see the walls and see the destruction of the walls and see the condition of these gates. He's heard the stories. He's heard that, that the people are demoralized, that they are saddened, that they're discouraged, that they feel as though they're in trouble. So he goes himself and just canvasses the, 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 the circumference of the city and just re- evaluates the, the gates and evaluates the walls. And he wants to discern the current reality because if he has this vision for a preferred future, he has to figure out, well, what's reality like now? How are we going to get from here to there? So he wants to figure out here. And in this moment, as he looks at the walls, I think there's an internal question that many of us ask when we see something like this, and yet we have a vision for something greater. We ask, well, what is needed to get this done? What are we going to do to get this done? How will we get from here to there? How will this vision for a preferred future become a reality? In chapter 2, verse 17, after he's evaluated the walls, after he's canvassed around the city, and part of it he's done at night because he doesn't want some people that are against him to see this, he's in a conversation with the Jewish officials, and he says this to them as they're listening, and, and, and after he's evaluated the walls, he says, you see the trouble we're in? It says, Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. So now he sees it with his own eyes. He, he discerns the current reality. But then he says this, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. For them, their current reality was disgrace. Not every vision you know, moves from disgrace to grace or disgrace to greatness. But his particular situation was that the walls were so bad, the city was so horrified, the, 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 the morale of the people was gone. And so he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. In other words, we will no longer be here, but we will eventually be there. And this is such a pivotal move in Nehemiah's journey, in Nehemiah's story. It's such a pivotal moment in his leadership and vision, even though we never even read the word leadership in this book. It doesn't come up. But it's a pivotal moment for him because he's under no false assumption that he or just a few people are going to make this happen. He's under no false assumption that, that that's going to happen. He doesn't believe that for a second. In fact, if you, if you consider from when the vision was sparked to the strategy to him even getting to Jerusalem, he solicited the king's help. He's like, hey, can I have some time off? Can you send me over to Jerusalem? He says, can you give me some letters so I can get through the ports safely? Can you give me some letters to reach out to some people who have the resources, the materials, the wood, so we can build this, rebuild this wall again? So he's, he's requested this, but this is so important. Even though he's taken this initiative Here's here's an important theme here. A great and worthwhile vision is impossible with one or just a few people to accomplish it. A worthwhile vision, a godly vision, a great vision is impossible for just one person or a few people to accomplish on their own. In fact, a vision is too small if it only requires you. I mean, unless you want to just ride your bike faster or you want to hit 5K, or you want to get your kitchen painted, well, maybe you need help getting your kitchen painted, and that's cool. So maybe you need more than one. Maybe you need two. But your vision is likely, my vision is likely too small if it only includes me, if it only includes you. 
In fact, often in our church community, some, you know, people will come up to me or to one of our leaders and say, hey, I have this idea. I want to start this ministry. And one of the things I often respond with is like, is there anybody else that you want to start this ministry with? And they're like, no, I think I just want, I have this idea. I want to do it. I'm like, well, why don't you go out and find somebody who shares the same conviction as you and maybe a few people and maybe you, if, that's, if that's the case, then you'll be a team of people who attempt this new ministry. Because it's so easy to get caught up with, I want to do this, I want to get this done. But often our vision is too small if we think only we can accomplish it. And that's why I often respond to people and say, you want to start something? Find a partner or partners to see this through. See, we often get inspired by some victory stories, right? Like stories of great accomplishments, of a person who accomplished this, or a person who finished this marathon, or someone who finished this project on their own. And, but I, I want us to just pause for a second. Those are great stories, and it's so good. You know, we celebrate those personal victories, but we cannot mistaken a personal victory for the accomplishment that it equals the accomplishment of a vision that impacts people beyond you. Don't mistake in a personal victory, whether it's your life or somebody else's life, as a replacement for a vision that impacts people way beyond one person. How many of you guys li- you know, liked the Rocky Balboa stories? Remember the Rocky Balboa stories? It was, it was uh, actually based on a real character, Rocky Marciano. And uh, it's inspiring, right? I mean, I grew up, you know imitating Rocky or my friends imitated Rocky. How many people have said Adrian enough times, right? Or he really said it better than that, you know, but, but we, we, you know, people grew up kind of watching these movies. I mean, now they've made six of them, but, um, this, this young boxer who grows up on the streets of Philadelphia and he grows up in a poor kind of poor state and a lot of obstacles, but he overcomes some of those and and, and he moves forward and he makes his way to the, to the top of the boxing circuit. It's amazing. And I love, if you go back to the, the scene just before this, I love this scene because here's, well, Sylvester Stallone playing Rocky here and he's running through the streets of Philly and all the people around him, they're all excited, they're cheering him on, they, they want this young guy from their neighborhood to succeed and move forward. And it's pretty amazing as, as he's running and they're running behind him and they're cheering him and then he runs up the steps. And that's, if you go to the next days, that, that's, that, that's kind of why that, that um, statue is there, is because it was such an inspiring story. It was such an inspiring story that people said, let's put up Rocky's statue right in center of Philadelphia. And when you look at the statue, it's interesting because it, it reflects, and it's an awesome story, right? I mean, it's great to have these stories, but it reflects one guy who accomplished a great goal, right? And inspired people. But who's, who's it really about? It's really about Rocky. Like the people who were running behind him and cheering him on, they were inspired just like we go see a hockey team and we cheer them on, but we're not on the ice, right? We're not on the court. We become spectators. And so that statue, as cool as it is, and, and I've been in Philly and I've walked up the steps because it's just fun to do and I've had a Philly and steak sandwich too because that's what you've got to have in Philly. But... It's about him and not them. It's about his win, not their win. And it was his fight and his accomplishment, not a vision that really impacted a broad group of people. And Nehemiah, he discovered, as all of us do, I think, when we're engaged in a godly vision, this real important principle that I just simply put on the screen. It's simple. It's we is greater than me. Nehemiah discovered along the way 
that we would be much greater than me, that us would be much greater than I. And as I think about our church community and the season we're in and this, even this next couple of weeks as we're calling each other to this vision that we see creating a meeting point of hope and a, and a new location and, and really anticipating a new season of greater capacity to reach people and, and bless people and be rooted in our neighborhood um, just to be really a, a voice and, and visibly present in ways that we haven't been yet. I get excited and I see this new vision and I realize it's even bigger than a building and it's, it's really about connecting people to a relationship with Jesus. And it's about creating this vision or this point of hope that we see. But here's, this is so, so important for us and it's so important for me. Vision is too big. This vision is too big for any one of us to accomplish it on our own. This vision is too big for any one of us to accomplish it on our own. When Nehemiah discerns the need, he doesn't say, great, I got it. I'm going to get this done. No, he calls them. He says, let us rebuild this wall. And then we will move forward towards a new reality, a preferred vision, a preferred future. And it's such an important moment in Nehemiah's story that he discerns this, that we is greater than me. That we is greater than me. And I want us to remember this because even our vision has a bigger vision that's way beyond us. And it's God's vision. God's larger vision that is way bigger than our church, way bigger than one church, and way bigger than a few churches in our city. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, just such a, a monumental verse where... Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, but then in all Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Those people he's speaking to, all of them would not personally touch all of Judea and all of Samaria and all the ends of the earth. But they were part of a bigger vision that God had to reach the world, to bless the world, to, to, that the world would come to know who he is through his son Jesus and come to know the life and the kingdom and the goodness of God's future for them and what Jesus accomplished on the cross for them. And I love this because this reminds me and it reminds us that even our vision has a bigger vision. That even God's vision in the world can't be accomplished with just one church or one group of people. Or That would be crazy if we thought Westside is going to reach the world. I mean, we like to say that, but realistically, we can be involved and our footprint can be involved. And we are involved in different parts of the world in our own way. But we're doing it collectively because God's vision is even bigger than us. And I love that because it's so important for us that we understand we're a piece, we're a pocket of God's greater vision, that the meeting point of hope that we want to create this local, tangible place with this new location, but also beyond that in how God uses us to reach people. We believe that this is true because our neighborhood and our region and your friends and my friends and family and and our networks and work uh, colleagues, they are in God's sight. They're in God's sight because God desires to reach the ends of the world. And so your friends and family and co-workers and neighbors, they are in God's sight. Sometimes we're there in our blind spot, but they're in God's sight. Sometimes at work, some of your colleagues are in your blind spot, but they're in God's sight. 
Some of the people that God wants to use us to reach and bless, they might be in our blind spot right now, but they're in God's sight because God has a greater vision. They're in God's sight. And as we look towards this new season and this new location, I can't uh, help but think that it, it just can't happen with one person or just a few people. It will need all of us. Just like Nehemiah looked at the people and said, let us do this. See, God has designed his mission so that together we create a new future. He hasn't designed it for one person or two people or a small group of people. He's designed it for his church together to create a new future for our generation and for the next generation. That's huge. For our generation, for the next generation. And as I think of Nehemiah's story, I love what happens because he moves from let us rebuild the wall. And if you go to chapter 3, we're not going to read it on the screen, but in chapter 3, it's fascinating what takes place because he starts to list just a whole bunch of people that are involved in building this wall. And in fact, it's titled, maybe your Bible has it titled as the builders of the wall. And he, he lists different people and different parts of the wall. And it's amazing because he, he, he actually begins to list every single gate, the sheep gate and the fish gate and the, the, the other gates that are mentioned there, the different people that are involved. And if you read chapter 3 and into chapter 4, what, ne- what Nehemiah starts to do is he starts to show us that this really did take a whole group of people to rebuild this wall. That it took a whole bunch of people, this exhaustive list of everyone, group by group, section by section, gate by gate, creating the future together. I was talking to a a friend of mine that used to be part of our church and moved out of town a couple of years ago, and he called me yesterday, and and he just said, he he just was thinking of me and us and our church. He said, how are you guys doing? And uh, and I told him we're in this, we're just, you know, the season we're in, he he knew, but so he was partly asking for that. And uh, he said, what are you doing on Sundays? I told him we're in this vision series. We're kind of using Nehemiah. He's like, oh, I've been reading Nehemiah. And I just read it like, uh, like fully last week. And he says, one thing that came to mind, and uh, he says, as, as Nehemiah is describing all the people that are serving, there's this phrase that jumped out at him. It says, and you'll, you'll see it if you read through chapter 3 and 4. It says, next to him, this person was doing this. And next to him, this person was doing this. And next to him, this person was doing this. And next to him, and he said, that phrase just jumped out at me. That next to one person and next to another person, and ne- like they made this human chain of work and movement and um, I don't know, it's been interesting, but I, I was listening to a live feed of a conference on family ministry this week. I just tuned into it for an hour. And they, they highlighted Nehemiah again. I'm like, God, are you, you're really trying to kind of feed this whole thing? And I'm like, that's awesome. You know, random phone call, live feed. We're walking through this. And, but just this beautiful picture that reflects the power of God's people working together. Next to him and next to her, next to them, and this gate and that gate, and our movement forward together where we all serve together. And it's amazing because it really points to what God does as a church. Like, this was Nehemiah, this was the Old Testament, this was just one moment in in history, and yet it points to, it gives us a glimpse of really the fuller picture that God wants to do in us as a church. If If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's an amazing chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. They're, they're like, they're a dysfunctional church community. I mean, you know, if you ever think a church doesn't have hope, read 1 Corinthians. Every church has hope. 
Okay? Um, and Paul, Paul, like, at this point, as he's trying to encourage them, he, he lists a whole bunch of gifts that are potentially inside their church community. The gifts of speaking, encouragement, the gifts of tongues or prophecy, the gift of giving or faith. And it's amazing. You read these gifts, and, and it's really great because God can use us all in a particular way to work towards his, his mission. But what's amazing about 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is not just the individual, individuality of it but the metaphor of the whole picture. Because Paul uses the metaphor of a body. That the church is the body of Christ. That no body part is more important than the other. Here's just a couple of phrases from 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. Verse 14, the body is not made up of one part, but many. In verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. I love this because it's not the specific gift that is the success of God's church. It's not the specific person or part or the, the each gift that matters most, but it's our participation in God's body. It's our participation in God's mission. It's our participation in God's vision. When I think back, if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 3, the people that Nehemiah lists that were doing these works actually had other jobs. Like the priests had their job, and the non-priests had their job, and the temple workers and the musicians, they had their roles. But all of them just kind of like, okay, let's build the wall. And they all came together to build this wall. They, Nehemiah, and, and what's amazing that happens is Nehemiah slips in the background. Nehemiah slips all the way kind of back here as he highlights all the people that are serving and contributing to this amazing vision. In fact, when you read Nehemiah, he's, he's humbled by God's work. He's humbled by God's gracious acts. He's humbled by people that come together to serve. And, and it's amazing because he begins to highlight the resolve and passion and participation of everybody. We is greater than me. As I was thinking about this piece of the story, I was reminded of, you guys know the story, right, of it's such a big story in the States, but of um, the U.S. hockey team in 1980 that won. If you've ever visited Lake Placid, it's like they're still living in 1980 because, like, everything is about the hockey team that won in 1980, right? I mean, there's still shirts and paraphernalia and posters and everything. It's like, if I lived in this town, I'd get sick of seeing it. But I guess tourists love it, right? So, so but in 1980, right, the U.S., Olympic team defeated all odds and won this amazing uh, tournament. And, and so, but the, the, the coach, Herb Brooks, uh, he was a coach for the USA team. And, you know, you can kind of search the internet and find some of his famous quotes because he inspired his team and worked with them to help them really grow together. And, and the coach, there's a moment in the movie, if you watch The, the Miracle, I think Disney created it. And um, Kurt Russell plays, plays um, the coach, but that's the real coach there, Herb Brooks. And there's this one moment where... You know, um, people are, are doing trials, tryouts for the team, and who's going to make it, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he has his assistant coach. His name is Craig Patrick. And so Craig comes to him in, in this scene in the movie, and he's like, Herb, let me see the, let me see the list for the, the players you've come down to. So uh, he, hands him, he hands him a list, and he's looking at the list. And he's reading the names. And he's like, Herb, you're missing, all, you're missing some of the best players here. I don't get it. You're missing some of the best players. They're not on this list. And Herb Brooks 
replies and he's like, Craig, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the right ones. Craig, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the right ones. And it's an amazing moment in this story as well. Because Herb Brooks was looking to create a team that would play together and be united and function as a team. He wasn't looking for stars that would just take one goal, one puck down the ice. He was building a team of right people that would learn to be a united team for the win. And not just the special gifts, but everybody's participation. Now, I'm assuming they had to play hockey. (laughs) They had to be good at hockey. But you get the point, right? This idea, and I love this, and it just, it kind of, it just reminds me of what Nehemiah is going through, and it, it reminds me of what, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And here's the thing as we come to wrap this up. I'm going to invite um, the team in a moment to come. Friends, think about this. As a church community, and those of you who are guests, and you know, if you're a guest here this morning, you're kind of coming into a season of our church that's really unique with us. We have a singular focus for the next several months as we move uh, into a new location and, and work towards it and, um, and anticipate what God has next for us as well and as we raise funds for that. But here's the thing for all of us. We have this exciting vision ahead of us. It's filled with opportunity. And I'm so encouraged when I see Many people engaged and excited and anticipating and praying. And as I see the different parts, the different teams, the different designs, the different conversations, the different prayer groups, the different uh, conversations around various parts of this, I see a couple of things. I see one, an anticipation. I see this in some people's hearts, an anticipation of how we will grow as a church community. As we engage this vision, as we engage this mission, how we will grow together as God's people. Not just reaching people around us, that's vital, but this anticipation of how we will grow as a community of God's people. I also see how people are getting excited about different ways and ideas that we're going to reach beyond ourselves. We can do this to reach people. We can become this kind of place of hope for people. We can offer this kind of hope in the future because we have X, Y, or Z. And so there's excitement that I see in people. There's also this real asking. I mean, I've talked to several people as we've been talking about funds and the resources needed. And, and I'm so impressed at some people's conversations with the Lord these days. They're saying, I'm asking God how he wants me to sacrifice, how he wants me to give towards this. And hearing questions and stories of, you know, whether single or married, just asking, how does God want me to respond to this? You know, someone at our vision briefing said, how, how can I learn, how, how, what, what are some things I can do to, to really walk into a season of sacrifice? I had someone today said that, you know, after our vision briefings, as they were looking at what they were intending for this, this uh, coming giving opportunity, like the Lord was impressing my heart to, to really double that. I don't know how we're going to do it, but I really feel the Lord leading us to that. And it's amazing. I'm hearing people ask these questions to the Lord, to themselves and their friends and their family. And it, what it encourages me is that we becomes bigger than me. We is greater than me. And when we is greater than me and God's vision is greater than us, we start to consider our participation in that. And here's, here's what I want to say as we 
slowly come to a close. We're not seeing this come to a reality with one person or two people or just a few people. We are. It's a growing number of people, but we need all of us, all of us, all of us. Now, if you're a guest today, (laughs) I'm thinking like, you need me? Well, you know what? We're doing this for you. (laughs) We're doing this for you because our church community wants to just open our arms up to people in our neighborhood in increasing ways. But here's a few outcomes that we can be praying for as we, as we move forward. And here's what I see as we move forward together as a community. One is we're telling a story. We're writing a story. We are writing a story for us. We're writing a story for our generation. And we're writing a story for the next generation. And we're writing a story that says we are following God's call. It, it, the story's not going to be written by some piece of furniture with somebody's name on the plaque. That's not how we're writing the story. But we're writing a story that together we're involved, we're praying, we're serving, we're giving, and we're putting a stake in the ground for our generation and the next generation. And when we do this a united way, we are writing a chapter in God's story for this local part of the world. We're also a witness. We are a witness because we become a pocket of Acts 1-8 to the ends of the earth, even to this region of Montreal. We become a witness for people that still don't know Jesus and don't know his hope. And so we become part of this movement of hope and sacrifice and generosity and faith. And here's the last piece that is so vital. Is that we, an outcome of this is unity. Not just because we are doing something. Because it's true, right? If I asked you to come shovel a hole in my garden, three of us would come together and we might get united around the task. It's true. You know, we also might butt heads and we might get mad at each other at the same time. But we will, there'll be a little fragment of unity, but that's not the unity I'm talking about. There's this sense of unity as we pursue God's vision and God's heart, this process that we're in that God will, he knit, he begin to knit us, knit us together in beautiful ways. And it's the unity of the gospel and the vision that's ahead of us that's so vital. And you know what? That's contagious and that grows and that reaches and that draws You guys can start into this last song. We want to end with a moment of worship, but I want to just, how I want to end today is just praying a portion of Jesus' prayer in John 17 that reflects the unity that we're talking about. And um, it's this prayer here. You can read all of John 17 and just be blessed by Jesus' prayer for his disciples and for the disciples that will come in the future. And part of the heart of the prayer is unity, is oneness. But here's, here's a couple of verses from this prayer, John 17. And Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Did you catch that? I, that's one of my favorite lines in all of Jesus' prayers. For those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is already telling his disciples that there is going to be people that believe in me through your message. It's not just you and your generation. It's others. They will believe in me through your message. He's praying that to God his Father for his disciples. For those who will believe in me through their message. And as we think about that, that's just, that's multi-generational in impact. And then he continues that all of them, all of them, past and future will be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Don't go further yet because that line I underlined is so important that all of them may be one, united in the gospel, in heart and spirit. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's a, that's a pretty 
specific description of oneness, of unity. And then this last line, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, when we unite together around the gospel, when we unite together around a common mission, when we serve each other and love each other and care for each other and engage community and receive from community, Jesus prays. He says, I pray that this would happen so the world may believe that God sent him for them. Somehow in our working together, somehow in our unity, and we might think it's only serving together, it's only offering a meal, it's only coming together around the common mission, but Jesus says, he tells us that in that very act, he, the world begins to know that he sent Jesus. So vital. Let's stand and I'm going to just pray this prayer once through and I pray that you pray it with me. Pray with me, and then we're going to move into a time of worship, just a short time of worship as we close today to bring all glory to God. But my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I'm going to pray uh, as well for us. And, and um, as the team leads us into a last song, if you feel like you need prayer this morning for anything, we want to make every Sunday available for anybody that needs prayer for anything. And so I'm going to ask if you know Mike can come forward and uh, Jonathan, maybe even, I don't know, Daria, if you want to come forward, you and Matt, or, um, and just be available to pray for people. If you feel like you need prayer today, and even after we finish, if you need prayer, we'll have some people available for that. All right, but let's pray right now. God, we're so grateful. We, wow, what an amazing prayer that Jesus leaves us. What an amazing desire that he has, Lord, for us, that we would be one, reflecting the same kind of oneness that you and he have. God, may we believe as Jesus believes that in our unity, in our togetherness, in our oneness, in our movement forward and participating, Lord, that you will use that. That you will use that, God, to send a message to those around us that Jesus is who he said he was. That he can be their Savior and Lord. God, may we trust and believe that even in our participative actions with one another, in this vision, in this season, but beyond that, God, in our call to be your church, in our call to to spread the gospel in our city, in our call to be your witnesses, God, as we do this together, God, may we trust that you will fulfill this prayer of your son, Jesus, that the world will know that you sent him. And God, we also pray in faith for those who will believe in Christ through our message, that those who will, those who will believe that maybe haven't believed yet or are in the process of believing or only will believe in the next few months or years, God, as we, as we also participate in being partners with your gospel here in our city to be witnesses to who you are, what Christ has done, and what you long for people's lives. Lord, we pray that in faith and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.